you would look with me in Psalm 27, Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who fills his or her quiver his and her quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage from the Psalter, a wisdom psalm. Grant us wisdom, and yet we know our wisdom is in Christ, who is our wisdom from God. Give us grace to appropriate his wisdom in this passage. Unless the Lord builds a sermon, the preacher preaches in vain. We ask that you would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1959, Charlton Heston starred in what is considered one of the greatest movies in history. That is Ben-Hur. Its climactic chariot race was 17 minutes of the most intense and dramatic footage ever filmed in movie history. And just for that one race scene... Uh, There were five weeks of preparation and filming that was required. In fact, that race scene required $5 million to finance. I think that was in 1958 when it was actually being filmed. In fact, Heston spent several weeks learning how to ride a chariot. He'd never ridden a chariot, believe it or not. And yet, even then, he was concerned about the race. And he famously said to the director... I can drive the chariot, but I'm not sure I can win. And the director responded, you just make sure you stay in the chariot and I'll make sure you win the race. So although he was tasked with learning how to ride a chariot and he was tasked with racing that chariot, the outcome was the director's. And when it comes to a family, Or any good endeavor for that matter. God calls us to endeavors beyond our family. Whatever he calls us to is we're going to see. Although the people of God are tasked. Are commanded to to use these verbs in this psalm. To build. To watch. And to toil. We must remember. The outcome is the Lord's. That in no way diminishes our responsibility. There's a famous Latin phrase, ora et labora. That is, you pray and you work. But we work in dependency, prayerfully before the Lord. That is Psalm 127. Now, Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, its companion psalm, which we'll look at on Father's Day, they are, and I believe this is strategic, I believe the Spirit intended it this way, they are the center psalms in what is known as the songs, the psalms of ascent. Uh, Psalm 120 to verse, uh, Psalm 134 are the songs of ascent. Uh, the, the pilgrims would sing these songs 
as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was considered the elevated place. Even today when Jews go to Israel, they go to Jerusalem, they call it the the Aliyah, the ascent. And so as they made their ascent to Jerusalem three times a year for these various feasts, these festivals, they would sing these songs. And the reason the contents of Psalm 127 would have been on the heart of the pilgrims is that it singles out three of the most important and universal concerns for humankind. The first is building. Now that building, as we're going to see, is a metaphor. It it, it can represent a place. It can represent a calling. It can represent an endeavor, a mission, if you will. The second thing this psalm hits on is security. We all long and need uh, security. And then thirdly, family. This is a psalm of Solomon. As far as we know, Solomon only wrote two psalms. He wrote Psalm 72, which is that great messianic psalm. And he wrote Psalm 127, which is considered a wisdom psalm. Indeed, like Ecclesiastes, which is a a wisdom book, he writes from very painful experience. And so not only is he writing by the the, the work and the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing from experience. Remember, his own building efforts and how reckless they were. 1 Kings 9, he spent more time, almost double the time, building his own house than he did building God's temple. That spoke to his priorities. We also see, uh, saw that his kingdom in 1 Kings 11, that looked very secure, was torn away from him. It was torn away from him after he died, but it was torn away from him because of his apostasy. And then his own family was devastated by his polygamy and his false worship. As he married these foreign women who worshipped false gods. As he tried to seek security from the various nations and, and sought the various funding from these nations... And it says in 1 Kings 11 that these women turned his heart from the Lord and it devastated his line. It devastated his family. And so Solomon is writing from painful experience. And the first thing we see in this passage, this chapter, this psalm, unless the Lord builds, there is no enduring house. Notice with me in verse 1. Unless the Lord Builds a house. You think Solomon is thinking about his own idolatrous building efforts? Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Here's a man who had a seemingly impenetrable kingdom. And yet it was all in vain. Now, note, first of all, the name. This is not Elohim, a generic name. This is the covenantal name. This is the name that this God wants to be known throughout all generations. This is his name forever. Exodus 3 tells us. It is Yahweh, the Lord. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the triune God. That's why when we pray, we pray Trinitarian prayers. We come to the Father... Through the Son, 
by the Spirit. We sing Trinitarian songs. This God is the one and true and living God. This is the God who sent His only Son into the world to redeem a people for Himself. It is this God, that is this Lord, who must build the house or the laborers labor in vain. Now, in the Old Testament, and in particular the wisdom literature, house can serve as a metaphor for any good endeavor. Proverbs 24, 27 is a, is a proof text where the writer, perhaps Solomon, says, prepare your outdoor work and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Now, he could be speaking there of a physical house, and it certainly applies to that. But the house there is any endeavor that God has called his people to. He is calling us to preparation and prudence. But we also see that this metaphor can refer to a physical structure or even to a family. That double meaning appears in 2 Samuel 7, for instance. When, when Nathan, the prophet, comes to King David and makes a covenant with him, or God makes covenant with David uh, through the mouth of Nathan, and he speaks of a future temple that David's son would build. Of course, we know the, the initial fulfillment of that was Solomon, but ultimately the, the eschatological fulfillment of that will be the greater son, the son of David, Jesus Christ. He also speaks of a future dynasty that David will have. The son of David who will come and sit enthroned as the ultimate king. And so both the uh, house and heritage is spoken of in that covenant made with David. But here's Solomon's point. For any of the possible activities and endeavors that fall within the parameters of this metaphor, there are only two possibilities. The first possibility is it has to be the Lord's doings or it will ultimately end in vanity. That's what Solomon is saying. This truth is undefeated. There's never been an exception to this truth. If the Lord isn't the power, the motivation, the goal for every endeavor we take up, it will be vain in the end. Now there's a very famous Latin motto, probably isn't famous to people that don't speak Latin, but it's a famous motto which says, Nisi Dominus Frusta, uh, which translates, and it's a translation of verse 1 in the Latin Vulgate, without the Lord, frustration. That's the motto. Without the Lord, frustration. And again, this truth is undefeated. It bats a thousand. Uh, I recently read an article about Melbourne Village College in England. And Melbourne Village College had this as its motto until 2011. In 2011, the students take a vote 
and decide to change the name to Inspiring Minds. And the acting principal said the reason for this is they wanted a motto that was more relevant. And the irony is so clear, isn't it? Unless the Lord is in a student's life, that student's life and that student's mind, no matter how inspired that mind might be, it will only lead to vanity. Indeed, any endeavor is vain without the Lord. So are our attempts at security. Notice in the second part of verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Notice he didn't say it's unimportant to have watchmen. We have watchmen. We have security. There's the old Persian proverb, trust God but tie up your camels. You see in Nehemiah's day as they're building the walls, they posted guards even as they trusted the Lord. That's what he is saying here. The word watches is the Hebrew word shamar. It first shows up in Genesis 2, and I believe Solomon is beholden to the Genesis narrative here, as we're going to see. It shows up in Genesis 2, verse 15, where Adam, the image of God, was placed in the garden to work and keep it. There's the word, shamar. Translated, keep. In most of our English Bibles. It's the word here. To protect. To keep. And so based on the principle of first use. That we see sometimes in hermeneutics. Solomon very likely has that in mind. If the Lord doesn't keep. Protect the place. Those who try to do so in vain. And that's a word to parents who. there's Every parent here wants to protect their children from ungodly influence and worldly influences and certainly protect them physically. And yet they're not availing themselves to the various means of grace that we're going to see that God employs to protect their children. Solomon is saying, you look at Adam. Adam was in a pre-fall state. He was not even a sinner. And he couldn't even keep the garden. He couldn't protect the place. He was given dominion over the animals, which means he was given dominion over the serpent. And not even this pre-fallen man could protect God's place from the serpent. And so if the Lord, Solomon is saying, isn't resourcing the keeping and the protecting... The human attempts are vain. We can apply that in so many ways, but on Mother's Day, just apply it to your home. Indeed, Solomon continues with this thought of vain pursuits in verse 2. We see the the word vain is used for the third time. Verse 2, he says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil. This metaphorically speaks of the really committed person. 
who believes by his or her dedication, doggedness, discipline, devotion, and duty will accomplish, will affect the outcomes that he or she so desires. It's the American way. You can do anything you want to do if you set your heart on it. And Solomon says that mentality just leads to more enslavement. And it's not simply that our pursuits will fail. Note, in this case, there is bread to show for the efforts. There's a house to show for the efforts, verse 1. But how can one enjoy it? The only thing harder than failing miserably is succeeding miserably. This is a quote that I found a few years ago from Leonard Wolf, and I've had it filed away. I think I used it in my study on Ecclesiastes. He was a very successful political commentator, theorist. He was a publisher in the 20th century in England. He was married to the famous feminist Virginia Woolf. They they were very secular people, modernist. And here's what he said at the end of his life. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. You ever felt that way? I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through 150,000 to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. It's a man who succeeded, but succeeded miserably. That's a prime example of what Solomon is getting at here. Eating the bread of anxious toil. This verse, and you can see it in your Bible. I'm not making this up. If you have a a cross-reference Bible. It's almost a verbatim quote to Genesis 3.17. Again, I think Solomon's mind is in the Torah. And in particular, Genesis. He believes the Old Testament... Is important, unlike some preachers today who say we need to break away from the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. That is the, the judgment that came after the fall, after the sin, after Adam sinned as our representative, our substitute. In pain, that word is the same word for toil in our text. In pain and toil, you shall eat of it. All the days of your life. The frustration that comes from life after the fall. The post-fall, the post-lapsarian reality of humanity. Solomon is directing our attention back to the words of judgment in Genesis 3. In other words, if all you are doing is pursuing this worldly horizontal pursuits... This is what you end up with. Ask Leonard Wolf. Ask virtually every person in Hollywood. And Solomon says there's a better way. A much more eternally glorious way. We begin to see it at the end of verse 2. 
For he gives to his beloved sleep. This is a life, in contrary to the vain life, built by God. A life that has stopped striving, seeking to make a name for oneself. The life of vainglory. And so, this life is a person who who recognizes he or she has been entrusted with a particular calling. It may be stay-at-home mom, which is the most glorious of callings. Or it may be to the workforce, which in that point, uh, point you're a tent maker, like Paul. Your identity is not in your work. It's not in your profession. Paul's identity was not in making tents. He made tents so that he could support his ultimate mission, the kingdom of Christ. So whatever God has called me to, I steward that responsibility. And then, if God gives me a family, I steward that family. I nurture that family in the things of God, in the, in the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to raise our family under. I'm a faithful person. And then I go to sleep without worry. God's extraordinary grace comes through ordinary obedience and stewardship. I believe a large cause of the sleep issues, and I read this week there's over 70 million Americans that are afflicted with some kind of sleep disorder. 70 million. And I'm not saying this is true of every person who has a sleep disorder, but I believe a large reason for the sleep issues is that we've lost the tension in that we have work to do, but it's the Lord who is behind the fruitfulness. It is the Lord who's behind the success. I don't have to concern myself with success. When I was interviewing for this church, they, I was asked on the committee, how are you going to get our church to 300? And I, I didn't know that I was the one bit to build the church. Jesus said he was the one that was going to build the church. And I just told them, I don't know if Jesus wants us at 300. My job is to preach the Bible. And then you go to sleep, trusting in that promise. And that's a soft pillow. And that's the mentality that Solomon's calling us to here. When we lose that tension, we either overwork or we overworry. But if you know and believe that the one who calls you beloved, isn't that beautiful? Notice that text. For he gives to his beloved. And who are the beloved ones? Those who are in covenant with God, and we know even better than Solomon, those who are in Christ, the beloved one. We are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1. So what's true of Christ is true of us. Our position, our inheritance is found in Christ. And when you know that the one who calls you beloved is in control of history, in control of your circumstance, and you don't have to overwork, you don't have to overworry. That's a soft pillow. That's what Solomon is saying. And the second part of verse 2 is really just the setup for verses 3 to 5. Because in verses 1 to 2, we see these vain pursuits, life without God. In verses 3 to 5, we see when the Lord builds, there is an enduring, enduring heritage. Notice in verse 3. Behold... Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit 
of the womb a reward. And so Solomon gives one central example to drive home the fact that our lives are governed by God. Think about the miraculous nature of children. It's a miracle to have a child. That's an amazing... First of all, the providence in a man and woman meeting who will be the mother and dad of that child. And then the supernatural reality of conception. He's given us an example here. But I think the two halves of Genesis 11 is the perfect example of what Solomon is doing in this psalm. It really describes and illustrates the two halves of Psalm 127. Because in Genesis 11, the first half of that, uh, that narrative, what's happening? You have people who are building a house without the Lord. They're building a tower to make a name for themselves. To have a heritage, if you will. Vain pursuits for vain motives. For security. And what happens to that house? Destruction. Judgment. Because that's what happens to every house. That's independent of God's purposes. But what happens in the second part of Genesis 11? An obscure man fathers a son. The obscure man, by the way, was a moon worshiper, Terah. And God interrupts his idolatrous, sin-stained existence. And brings forth a heritage that continues to reverberate today. Genesis 11, verse 26, he bears a son, or his wife bears a son, and his name is Abram. Whose name would be changed to the father of a great multitude, Abraham. Who would bear a son, whose wife would bear a son, named Isaac. Who then would have a son, named Jacob. Who would then have a son, named Judah. Who would then have a son, named David. Who would then have a son, Named Jesus. A heritage that keeps on giving. Note in verse 3. Nothing is said of money. Nothing is said of career. Our identity is not bound up in our career. Nothing is said of education. Nothing is said of position and status. Solomon says. Who happens to be probably still the wealthiest person who's ever walked the earth. A family that walks with God is God's strategy. Heritage is something that is passed on from one generation to the next. Something that will last in contrast to the vain pursuits of verses 1 to 2. And unfortunately, many people have children, but they still lose sight of the, the heritage that children are. Isn't this Genesis 128, where God blesses the first couple, and then he commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? They were to fill the earth with what? God's glory through his image bearers. So that every nook and cranny of the world would be filled with the glory of God. One big temple. One big holy of holies. And the Satan, the devil, he knew God's plan. And he seeks to circumvent that plan with the first couple. 
And what is God's response? That woman that you have deceived is going to have a baby. And that baby is going to crush your head. And then there will be those who are united to that baby, the seed of the woman collectively, and they will progressively crush your head. Indeed, Romans 16, 20 picks that up. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. So how does God defeat and oppose his enemies? He brings babies in the world. And he brings those babies under the influence of godly parents. Our spiritual parents. Now, not everyone is called to be a parent. Not everyone is. And that's a painful reality for some. Some are called to wait longer than others. Waiting is a, there's a theology of waiting in scripture, isn't there? That's God's prerogative. And we trust in the Lord. And it's okay if it hurts. Just don't let the pain control your life. Not everyone is called to be a parent, but every Christian is called to be a spiritual parent. Every Christian. So this is a word to every believer in this room. Our identity is not bound up in our parenthood. If it is, my identity fluctuates from day to day. Because some days I believe I'm the worst parent on the planet. Our identity is bound up in Jesus Christ alone. But every Christian is called to invest in spiritual children. That's God's battle strategy. Think about this. Whenever Israel went into the land, Deuteronomy 7 to 9 are their marching orders. Read Deuteronomy 7 to 9. It describes the Canaanites, mighty people, warriors, wicked people. He describes... The marching orders. But have you ever thought about what precedes Deuteronomy 7 to 9? In Deuteronomy 6, God tells his people through the pen of Moses, you take my law and you teach your children along the way. You teach them about me. You teach them about my word every day of their lives. That is my strategy. As you go into the land, that's how you stay in the land. Or how does 1 Samuel begin? What is 1 Samuel about? It's the book of restoration. Israel is restored, through no merit of their own, from this endless sin cycle in Judges. Where they sin, they experience sorrow, they cry out in supplication, and then God brings salvation through a messed up Gideon, or a messed up uh, judge, who needs salvation himself. And in 1 Samuel, we have the restoration beginning. And how does 1 Samuel itself begin? It begins with a woman who longs to be a mother. And she prays and God gives Hannah a son, a warrior son, whose name is Samuel. And she trains him in the Lord. And she gives him back to the Lord. And through this warrior... We have a mighty weapon in the hand of God to bring restoration to Israel and bring about the monarchy. In fact, we see in verses 4 to 5 that children are metaphorically described as weapons. Notice in verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Who's the warrior? It's the parents. It's the spiritual parents. 
are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's not a coincidence that most Christians are Christians because their parents were Christians. That's actually been used as a, an apologetic, apologetic against the Christian faith. Well, the only reason these guys are Christians is because their parents were Christians. Yes, that's God's design. The primary arm of evangelism in the Bible is not the pastor. It's not a program in the church. It's not the youth pastor. It's not the children's pastor. It's the parents. That has always been God's design. And this means parents. Yes, it's the Lord who builds your home. It builds your house. Who builds your family. But we have the responsibility to shape our arrows in such a way to sharpen them in such a way that they are worthy to be fired. So that he says the enemies of God would be shamed. What is he saying there? They can contest your faith, but then they see your arrows that you're shooting and it confounds them. That's what he's talking about. How can you contest this godly son, this godly daughter. Only the true and living God could do something like that. And so children, raised to walk under the lordship of the living God is the greatest weapon in our arsenal to take on the domain of darkness with the sword of the spirit and so crush the serpent's head. And the central way to send your legacy to a generation that you will never see. Let me close this up. This past week on May the 9th, Dwayne Casey, and for those of you that aren't NBA fans, you may not know who Dwayne Casey is. He is the coach of the Toronto Raptors. On, on Wednesday, he won coach of the year in the NBA. Most victories led his team to the second round of the playoffs. Coach of the year on Wednesday. Two days later, the coach of the year got fired. Awarded coach of the year on Wednesday, fired by his team on Friday. He had two days to celebrate. Why? He cannot beat LeBron James. And that's such an apt metaphor, I think, for every accomplishment outside of Christ. You may enjoy it for a time, but it's all vanity in the end. It's temporal. It won't endure. And this psalm is encouraging us to a house, a heritage that will. This is a wisdom psalm. And the wise will take heed. One closing app. Just one application to this passage. There's so many you could give, but for time's sake. This text is about heritage 
heritages that are built by the Lord that will endure, endure beyond us. Solomon does not want you to make his mistake. He does not want that for you. And you don't have to have children to have this, this heritage. But you are called to discipleship. You're called to have spiritual children. And here's the key, I think, above all else. And I think this is missing so often in today's climate. We must consistently and constantly place our children in the way of allurement. I get that term from Jonathan Edwards, the way of allurement. So that God in Christ becomes progressively and increasingly attractive to our children. And so that he becomes more attractive than what the world is offering our children. So that when they are tempted, they see it for the counterfeit that it is. And they behold and they profess Christ as more attractive than the alternative. You know, we often forget that God performs his extraordinary work of spiritual awakening through ordinary means. Unfortunately, many parents are seeking to give their children things that they didn't have when they were growing up. And oftentimes that means they take their children away from the ordinary means of grace that come Through corporate worship. Yes, family worship is vital. As important as family worship is, and we do it as a family ourselves, corporate worship, I believe, is even more vital. And then they wonder why their children are not interested in the things of God. What are these ordinary means? Let me just offer you these words from the Baptist Catechism the outward and ordinary means. By which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances. Especially his word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And this is the Lord's strategy. In building his house. In building a heritage for us. Because faith is the way... Our arrows are sharpened. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of Christ. It's that simple. And yet too many parents who are so concerned about giving their children what they didn't have. They end up stunting what their children fundamentally need. The ordinary means of grace. That's the place of allurement. And one of those means is the table. And in God's providence, we are participating and eating at the Lord's table today. It is a means of grace. And when we partake of this table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's one of the means God has given us to give us eyes to behold how glorious and exalted the Son of God really is. And we generally uh, participate at this table the first Sunday of every month. Last week we did the baptism, so we, 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 we moved it to today, and I'm glad that we did. If you're visiting with us today, we would love for you to participate with us here at the table upon a couple of conditions. 